This is Generation Justice. I'm Tamara Kalaki. And I'm George Luna Peña. Generation Justice is a multimedia movement that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. Tonight, we're sharing part two of our 2015 Best of series. We'll showcase the statewide and national justice campaigns that Generation Justice has been a part of. Organizing and campaign work has been an important strategy for giving rise to underrepresented voices, improving local and national conditions, and building collective power across issues. At a national level, there were great gains in the media justice arenas of net neutrality and prison phone justice. Not only did we win the right to communicate, but we highlighted the strength and beauty of culture and history through our hashtag GJCultureStrong campaign. In 2015, we also spent time listening to the stories of people in our community who spoke of the pain of not having behavioral health care. This led Generation Justice to hashtag NMSpeaksCrisis, our newest campaign. If you're in need of feeling hopeful, join us in the next hour as we highlight these powerful local and national justice campaigns. And throughout the show, we will be playing some of the great music that GJ aired in 2015. To start us off, here's John Legend and The Roots, featuring Common and Melanie Fiona with the song, Wake Up Everybody. Back in February of 2015, we spoke with Steven Renderos from the Center for Media Justice about the importance of net neutrality and how to encourage the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, to prioritize access and affordability when it comes to the Internet. The Center for Media Justice and its project, the Media Action Grassroots Network, or MAGNET, have been organizing nationally on this issue for years. Generation Justice has been there every step of the way as a Magnet member and more recently as the anchor and lead organization for the New Mexico region. After protests, millions of comments to the FCC, and a new chairman, we didn't know if the FCC would side with the people or with the corporations that were pressuring them to commodify the Internet. But on February 26, 2015, the FCC made their landmark decision to vote for net neutrality. Now... Here's Generation Justice Fellow Cristina Rodriguez with Steven Renderos to explain more about why we need equal access to the web. I'm Cristina Rodriguez, and I'm joined by Steven Renderos. Steven, welcome to Generation Justice. Thanks for having me, Cristina. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I'm the national organizer here at the Center for Media Justice. We are a media and organizing center based in Oakland, California. Our primary project is we host a national network of media activists called the Media Action Grassroots Network, or MAGNET for short. And our work there is really advocating for a better media system. And the folks that we primarily work with are folks who work at the intersection of social justice and media change. So a lot of them are organizers that work on issues like immigrant rights, criminal justice, come from communities of color, not necessarily your techies as you know one would imagine in this sector. I know Magna has been doing a lot of work surrounding net neutrality. Can you help describe net neutrality for us? Net neutrality is just the basic principle that all voices online are created equal. It's the idea that if I want to access a website, that I'm able to do so without anybody telling me or blocking my access to that website. It also works the other way around in, in the sense that 
you know, the Internet is one of the very few places where people can be both consumers of information but also producers of information. So net neutrality is, is a principle that's been in place since the beginning of the Internet. It's something that we have all benefited from because it's one of the very few places, again, where um, all voices matter. And it's something that the FCC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, has been trying to implement into actual rules over the last, you know, maybe about 10 years and haven't been as successful at it, but we're finally getting very close to an actual vote that might make net neutrality the rule of the the land. So why is it under attack? The reality is that the Internet is one of these places where Internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, Time Warner see a lot of huge potential for their future kind of revenue-generating projects. You know, right now, the Internet has been fine as it is for them because they've been able to make and generate some pretty healthy profit margins. But they're thinking into the future. What could make them more money in the future? And some of the things that they're looking at doing would severely crush what the Internet is as we understand it. You know, what a lot of these companies would like to do is do what happens to us on cable, which is versus having access to the whole thing, they would much rather that we only have access to a certain number of websites. They want to be in the position to pick and choose what websites we can have access to. So, you know, rather than pay $50 a month for my internet connection, I'll pay $50 a month to access, you know, 50 websites or something like that. So the fight for net neutrality is really it's kind of a fork in the road. On the one hand, we can keep the internet to be what it is today, this political, economic, social force where every voice matters, or we can go the route of privatizing it, corporatizing it, and letting a handful of companies truly benefit from the beauty of the internet. I like how you called it an upcoming fork in the road. Can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of this upcoming vote on February 26th? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, the, the Federal Communications Commission has been toiling with this issue for close to a decade. In the last year, um, there's been a lot of momentum around really getting the FCC to implement some rules. They're planning on voting on some rules on February 26th. And the chairman of the FCC, who, by the way, used to be the top lobbyist for the cable and wireless industry, somehow he's come around on this issue. He's proposed some rules, which would be, you know, actually the strongest net neutrality rules that the internet has ever had. It would prevent companies from blocking, from slowing down content online, from, you know, creating fast lanes and slow lanes, and would apply all of these rules both to to your internet access on a computer or a cell phone. So it doesn't matter where you access the internet, your voice is protected. And he's proposed doing all of this by doing something which is called reclassifying the internet. So essentially regulating the internet differently than it has been over the last 10 years. He wants to start regulating the internet more like a utility, more like a telephone line, uh, given the role that it plays in people's everyday lives. So it's a a huge deal. It's something that can make the difference between us having a political voice online and being able to see the examples like the voices coming out of Ferguson, the voices that have come out of New York around the Eric Garner case, and even in Albuquerque, where it's probably been a pretty, you know, pretty common knowledge for most folks in Albuquerque that the local police department is particularly violent. But given everything that's happened um, over the last few months around Ferguson and, and the Internet and the role that the Internet has played in amplifying those stories, it's much more common knowledge nationally that Albuquerque is a place where you have some of the most messed up police violence against communities of color. So that's really what's at stake here on this vote is do we get an opportunity to really share those stories? Or do companies like Verizon and Comcast and AT&T get to continue profiting 
from the internet and kill the the innovation and political voice of many communities that are currently marginalized. Can you elaborate a little bit on how the open internet is a tool for empowering communities of color? I think the the idea that you have a decentralized platform where you can have a voice is a very powerful thing. And I think it can be oftentimes taken for granted. The reality is that on most other kind of mainstream media channels, we don't have that level of access. We don't have access to distribution and we don't have access to actually creating the content ourselves. A lot of folks like to point out the fact that in Ferguson with the murder of Michael Brown, it took a million tweets before you know, outlets like CNN started paying attention. So that's the real power of the internet. It's a place where if we mobilize enough voices, you know, all of a sudden the, the mainstream channels that often ignore us or often represent us in a very negative light start listening and start paying attention. And it can have, you know, huge ramifications to the political process. Even thinking of the hashtag Black Lives Matter, going from a hashtag where people were discussing the value of black lives, you know, over Twitter has grown into an actual movement. You have Black Lives Matter chapters all over the country. You have people organizing on the day-to-day to push back against police violence, against all types of black violence. And, you know, and I think that's a credit to the Internet. And a lot of that is just the basic principles of how the Internet works, that we, we get to be connected just by virtue of the platform. I can share any information. I can amplify certain stories. I can host a petition. I can do all sorts of things online that were not necessarily available to me before, and I can do it on an international scale, and that's truly powerful. Regarding net neutrality, what is the most important thing that New Mexicans should know? Well, you know, the the fight for net neutrality is really, and, and the potential victory that we might see on February 26th is really the beginning for us. Because the next thing we want to look at is how do we ensure that now that we have an open Internet, how do we ensure that everyone gets to benefit from it? Particularly for New Mexico, this is important because New Mexicans are sometimes they're 49th, sometimes they're 50th uh, when it comes to broadband adoption. So, you know, folks actually using the technology um, and having access to it at home, you know, New Mexicans really uh, are suffering um, from a lack of infrastructure and from, you know, to be real, just affordability around um, Internet. And so the next thing we want to look at is how do we ensure that folks that need it but maybe can't afford it at the current rate are able to afford it in the future. And again, just thank you for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you so much, Stephen, for all the work you have put to protect our right to communicate freely. And thanks again, Christina, for that great interview. Net neutrality was a victory that was a decade in the making, one that impacts folks locally and nationally, and one that many of us worked hard for. Looking back at all the hard work that Stephen mentioned makes me proud to be part of Team Media Justice. Thanks again, Stephen. Now, here's the song titled The Jailer by Aaron McEwen. Break my back and tie my hands Send me to the jailer For every man that jailer keeps His soul is getting darker Generation Justice fought for communication as a human right in another campaign as well, the campaign to lower unreasonably expensive prison phone rates. 
One of the FCC's responsibilities is to regulate interstate and international communications, including telephone access and rates. But prison phone companies were managing to make enormous profits off of families and their loved ones who are incarcerated. In October, Generation Justice produced a show to highlight those who are working on all fronts of this issue, speaking with activists, lawyers, and family members. Up next, we bring you a conversation between G.J. Fellow, Polly Dineklaw, and Carrie Wilkinson of the Human Rights Defense Center, an organization that works to protect those who are impacted by the criminal justice system. My name is Polly Dineklaw, and I'm with Carrie Wilkinson from the Human Rights Defense Center, who is joining us from Seattle, Washington. Thanks for joining our program today, Carrie. I'm glad to be here. Carrie, can you please just introduce yourself? I am the Prison Phone Justice Director for the Human Rights Defense Center. We are the publisher of Prison Legal News, uh, which has been reporting on the prison phone industry for decades now. And we co-founded the Campaign for Prison Phone Justice in 2011 that was successful in getting an FCC order that regulated interstate phone rates, the rates from prisons and jails in one state on calls to another state. And we're currently anticipating an order that will do that same type of regulation for calls made within the same state. Why is prison phone justice a key issue for the Human Rights Defense Center? We believe very strongly in prisoner communication. People should not be locked up for long periods of time and not allowed contact with the outside world. Studies show that prisoners who are able to stay in touch with and maintain family contact and ties with their support systems during times of incarceration, not only do they experience a smoother transition back into society, but they also have much lower recidivism rates. And what has happened over the past decade with private industry becoming so involved in the prison phone industry and creating a business model that generates kickbacks to the government agencies that sign the monopoly contracts with the telephone companies. The price of the prison phones has just gotten too expensive for a lot of people to afford. And then at the time that they are released from prison or jail, and 95% of all people who are incarcerated will be released. If they haven't been able to maintain contact with the outside world during the time that they were incarcerated, they just don't have a very good chance for success. Why do you think prison phone justice is a human rights issue? Because people have a right to associate with their families. Currently in the state of Arizona, the Arizona DOC is getting a 93.9% kickback from uh, CenturyLink, who provides their telephone services. So a 15-minute phone call is $6. So 93.9% of that is paid as a commission to the Arizona DOC. So assuming the FCC vote is positive and the 11 cent rate goes into effect, prisoners in the Arizona DOC system are going to see the cost of a 15-minute phone call go from $6 to $1.67. The problem as we see it is that the telephone company is contracting with the prison or the jail. And that is who they view as their customer, not the prisoner's families who are actually the ones using the service and paying for it. 
And so what happens in this business arrangement is the jails, historically, they have been able to get a kickback from the telephone company. They want as much money as they can get. So they demand a really high commission, and then the telephone company has to charge artificially high rates and still get a profit. The two largest players in the prison phone industry are companies named Securus Technologies and Global Tellink. Between the two of them, they service 80% of the market, and they are both owned by hedge funds. So they are all about profit, and it has just gotten completely out of control. And Carrie, is there anything else that you would like to add? You know, for such a long time, prisoners and their families have been such a marginalized group in this society that no one has really cared what has happened to them or or who's ripping them off. And it's nice to see the regulators finally taking a look at this very poor consumer group. And, you know, all of that money comes from prisoners' families. Securus Technologies, one of the companies that I referenced earlier, they issued a press release in March of this year that said in the last 10 years, they have paid $1.3 billion in commissions to correctional facilities in the United States. And every penny of that $1.3 billion was paid for by a prisoner or their family or a friend or someone you know who put money on books to pay for a prison phone call. And that just isn't right, and it needs to stop. Carrie, thank you for talking with us here at Generation Justice. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad I was able to help, and I really appreciate you reaching out to us on this subject. Thanks, Carrie, for all the love and energy you put into ensuring that those who are incarcerated have the human right to communicate with their families. And thank you, Polly, for this important interview. I'm grateful I got to be a part of this movement to reduce prison phone rates. I couldn't agree more, Tamara. And as part of our work around the Prison Phone Justice Campaign, Generation Justice member Jasleen Mendoza represented New Mexico on a national delegation of families and advocates in Washington, D.C. There, she and others met with legislators and FCC commissioners. Jasleen experienced the consequences of the unregulated prison phone industry firsthand, and she shared her story to help the FCC understand why action is vital. Here's Jasleen Mendoza sharing her powerful testimony. My name is Jasleen Mendoza. I'm from Generation Justice. Today I would like to share my story of my father and I. Over the past 12 years, he's been locked up in prison. Before my father got locked up, I was being raised by him and my grandparents, who now I call parents as well because they have raised me all these 12 years. When he got locked up, I was left with my grandparents, and I haven't had the opportunity to talk to him as often as I wished I could. Talking to my father at least five minutes will make my month. Knowing how he's doing, knowing that he's okay, and knowing that he loves me is all I need to hear from him. It's not enough at all. For what my grandparents pay, it's not enough. Five minutes, I wish I could talk to him the whole 15 minutes. But then yet again, my grandmother needs to talk to him. My grandfather has to talk to him. 
it hurts because I can't tell him what I really want to tell him. My grandmother tells me, oh, oh, no, don't tell him that. That's irrelevant. It's nothing. And I just stay there like, mom, it's, it's important for me. But how she says, time runs out. So the last few words I say is, daddy, I love you. I miss you. And it's hard to say goodbye. Sometimes I don't even catch her say goodbye because it hangs up on me since I don't have communication with my dad. I lost the bonding that me, me and him had. He used to take care of me. He used to go out and play and over the summers. He used to um, put out the pool. I would stay there in and out and he would call me his mermaid. And like he missed my eighth grade graduation, fifth grade graduation. Important things in my life that have passed. And like my only hope is that by the time I graduate college, with at least my master's, he'd be out to at least experience that. It's sad to say that I lost the connection with him, not because I wanted to, but because we can't have that communication we want because either the rates are too high or it it's just not it's not as easy to just say pick up a phone how it is now because they charge you right away and he has to be wise when to call because sometimes we miss a call and there goes this month of calling so for the 12 years that my father has been locked up and I know there will be probably a lot more years to come. My parents have sent him at least $200 a month. So $200 a month times 12 years is about 28000 around that. But I'm not counting when they used to give more before. And my parents, I mean, they don't work. They're old. They're signed five and 76 years old, they get social security. They can't afford it. They have to choose what they need to pay after they send my dad money. Yes, I do send him money when I can, but then as well, I have my own, my own bills to pay. And so it makes me feel that I should be doing more when I learned that communication is a human right, it made me feel that they're taking that right away from me. It's not fair that everyone does get to um, talk to their loved ones. I know he is locked up, but it doesn't give them the right to take that right away from him. Everyone's our humans and that's a need of humans to have comfort and they find comfort through communication as well. Obviously, we always look up to our parents and my father was a great parent. I don't think that he's a criminal how society portrays him. But as I see it now, no, he's not a criminal. He's just any other person that committed a mistake and that deserves another chance. I miss him and I love him 
in that I'll stand up for him and be his voice. Although he hasn't been there all these years, I know that one day he will be here. And the things I do, I do thinking of him, trying to make him proud. Because how society says that if you have a mother or a father or both parents that do wrong, you're going to end up the same way. I'm proving them wrong because I am going to college. I have good grades. I'm doing good. I'm working for my degrees and not giving up. And that I love him. And that sooner or later, I'll be able to be with him. In this life, you just have to take a stand and do it. Thank you. Thank you, Jasmine, for sharing your powerful story. Every time I hear your testimony, it gives me hope for a better future. May you be blessed with many more opportunities to share your story and take a stand for your dad. Jasmine, you and I started at Generation Justice around the same time, and it's been an absolute honor to see you grow into the strong young woman of color you've become today. And like Tamara said, thank you for taking a stand. We're proud of you. Now, here's obscene phone calls by Mugabe. Five phone numbers that he can call. Those are the only family members who have maintained their jobs through the financial crisis. The cost of the phone calls, the cost of the phone calls, the cost of the phone calls has severely limited his chances of gaining parole. For prepaid calls, it's $7 for 20 minutes. I'm sure the FCC can make this year, we've also seen how institutional racism is still very much alive here in New Mexico. Nationally, this is a common issue. In places like Tucson, Arizona, Chicano studies programs and books are banned and under attack. In response, Generation Justice chose to counter this racism by focusing on the positive impacts of ethnic studies. We also wanted to showcase the political efforts happening locally which include New Mexico State Senator Linda Lopez and her memorial to address institutional racism. To talk more about the steps that were taken, here's State Senator Linda Lopez with GJ Fellow Cristina Rodriguez. I'm Cristina Rodriguez with Generation Justice, and I'm joined by New Mexico Senator Linda Lopez. She's a Democrat who's represented the South Valley and the Southwest Mesa here in Bernalillo County since 1997. Senator Lopez, Welcome to Generation Justice. Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be with you and um, maybe to share some thoughts. Our communities here in New Mexico and, of course, across this nation and many worldwide deal with this issue on a daily basis. And what I have seen during my time in office is we really are not having the necessary conversation and dialogue about what racism is, the lack of mobility, ability, however you wish to determine, for our people of color to move forward. This memorial is asking state government to review and look at our what we do in state government. If we're going to ask and talk about this issue on racism and how we begin the change, then state government needs to be the leader in it. In order to continue that dialogue, can you help us and our listeners understand what is institutional racism? Institutionalized racism, you know, has a definition that you know, when we had this conversation in the session two years ago, 
You know, everybody has their own dialogue, but it's not something that you can see explicitly out in front of us, like a physical building, but it's embedded in policy. In state government, I've been speaking with many state employees who have been around for 25 years, 20 years, and they come in and are asked to help train new employees who come in that may not be a person of color, maybe from someplace other than New Mexico. The person who's been there traditionally has been a person of color who's passed over. They're asked to train them, and then this other person takes over that position and then continues to move up. Within our school system, the way that our children are perceived, how they are treated when they walk in the door, that's part of some of the initiatives that Albuquerque has been working against just to create um, a welcoming environment where if you speak one language, maybe not English, then you are treated differently. When that's perpetuated through you know, our school system and many other places, to me that's also called institutionalized racism until we began to work at it, have a dialogue. If we truly are to be a people united, recognizing all of our differences, that we need to be accepting of the people who are different from me just because of who I, you know, of what I look like doesn't mean you have to look speak the, the way I do. Do you anticipate that there will be any resistance or opposition to this memorial? Oh, yes. Yes, ma'am, I do. There are some people who will feel offended, and it's what it is. And it's not meant to hurt anyone, but it's part of this conversation that we must keep alive. Because if we keep quiet, don't talk about it, then... Sometimes in your silence, that means you're accepting of what's being given to you. And none of our people, regardless of color, creed, sexual orientation, whatever it is, religion, all of us should have that same opportunity to move up and move forward in our careers. They have the same opportunity for success, whatever that success is for the individual. Thank you, Senator Lopez. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Pay attention to what's happening up in the New Mexico legislature. We need to be aware and pay attention because if we look back in history, you know, things started small where they then became larger and began to persecute people just because of their differences. And we always have to be aware, educate ourselves, and participate. You know, talk to your legislator, send an email, a phone call, and uh, let us know that you are very much interested because we do need you. I need you there. Again, just thank you, Senator Lopez, for all the work that you do and for having this dialogue with me as well as our family here at Generation Justice. We just want to thank you again. Well, thank you, and um, I look forward to having some more conversations, too. Senator Linda Lopez, thank you for your leadership. We need more legislators who are not afraid to stand up against institutional racism. In March, Generation Justice launched hashtag GJCultureStrong a 30-day campaign for our community to speak out about why ethnic studies curriculum is life-changing. We shared the voices of over 50 New Mexicans who talked about the importance of knowing our history, culture, and identities. Now, here is a collection of voices from that campaign. Everybody should know their culture, whatever culture you want to belong to. Then you can believe that everybody else can have their culture too. It's liberating for one and it's liberating for everybody. The communities are only going to get stronger when we have 
that um, knowledge about how we came to be, what, how these policies got into place, how um, colonialism works, and that way you know um, what you're inserting yourself into and you know how to better prepare to be um, a good, just a good and decent human being interacting in the world. Coming from Jerusalem, it was such a culture shock, kind of, and, and especially after 9-11, um, there was just this big negative depiction of Arab Americans, and I kind of was like, oh, I don't want to tell people I'm Arab or Muslim, I don't want to say that I'm Palestinian, I don't want to do any of that. So I think it's really important to um, include ethnic studies um, in our curriculum because your students would accept themselves. Um, and ultimately, I think that would make a tremendous difference in academia, period. Ask yourself this question, um, how can you really be yourself and represent yourself if you don't have a knowledge of who you are? And um, African American studies really provided me with that knowledge and an insight as to my, my personal past, uh, my um, cultural heritage, um, just giving me a, a very broad view and some in-depth views of where I come from, that I come from a rich, a rich, diverse culture of kings and queens. Chicano studies is something that like my grandparents would have been really proud of. If they would have known it's something that I was studying, something I was doing in my young adult life, learning about my history, like they didn't get to. You know, where I come from, they got um, punished for speaking in Spanish. They, we have community members who have lost their jobs for trying to teach about our history and, and our people because it's a very contested history. It's a very controversial one. And so it would, it would be of a huge sense of pride, um, I think, from, from my elders and from those who have you know, fought for us to be here. Being able to obviously combat racism would be uh, one way would be through education, obviously. Learning about other cultures, um, learning about other ethnicities, maybe even an ethnic studies course, you know, it helps people learn about other people in the world. And if you are not interested in learning about other people, then you're probably kind of likely you might be racist down the line. Knowing my history allows me to have a greater sense of security, um, to be empowered, to also empower the students that I've had the privilege to teach over the years. Once you know who you are and you're grounded with your roots, right, it just shifts your education and your entire purpose, I think, in life. Any kind of analysis, you know, any kind of understanding of U.S. history, which was founded on, you know, white landed men being able to vote. Those are the first folks that could even vote. So um, all the institutions were set up to benefit white people and to consolidate power and wealth in the hands of white people. Which is why I think studies is so important because you kind of get an analysis of that, a critical understanding of that, which you wouldn't get otherwise, I don't think. Knowing your own history just really provides um, a meaningful experience for, for students of any race and ethnicity to feel like they're a part of the world and they're connected and that you know, who they are is understood and is appreciated. When I moved back to Albuquerque in the middle 70s, the presence of ethnic studies were here. And I was impressed with the fact that it, they were there. I also, it made me realize what it's like to go through school and not have the presence of those programs. I felt cheated. And so now I'm aware of, of, of these programs um, 
And I think that the students are the beneficiary, first and foremost, but I think the University of New Mexico and any collegiate institution is going to be the beneficiary. Students much more aware of the differences. Students able to see those differences as advantages and not as disadvantages. I think it's wonderful. Why would you want to ban something that is another human history? Why would you want to do that? Why do you want to be underlying racist, I guess? That's how I see it. Because um, in the end, we're all human. Um, it doesn't matter what your race is, but your, where your pride and your community come from, that is your history. When you look at our, 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 our cultures, you know, our, our language, for me, our ceremonies, those are systems that exist outside of this larger system that wasn't built for us. So you can build your own system or find systems that are built for you because they're out there. And you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You can operate within all these different systems, but just know the difference. Ethnic studies programs are critical. They give students the tools that they need, the critical consciousness to um, be uh, agents on their behalf and to be agents for their communities. And I think that's why ethnic studies in some states like Arizona ha have come under attack. Uh, because people are, are concerned. When young people of color gain a critical consciousness and they start asking questions, you know, that's worrisome to um, people who are not invested in communities of color. The Africana Studies program began through a student movement. The students here at the university felt that they wanted a, a program. They petitioned the uh, administration to have a program and uh, it, it evolved out of a student movement and I would say a student protest movement. And so we owe it all to the students who said, this is what we want and we have the, uh, we have the power to make this happen. Colonization doesn't just affect Native Americans, it also affects the minds of all people of color because through our education system, they are occupying our own history and our own minds to make us feel inferior, to make us feel like we are a different class of Americans when in actuality we are Americans and we deserve to be taught our own histories. I graduated from Chicano Studies uh, undergrad major in California and I mean when I met Chicano Studies I, it gave me a sense of purpose in education. I always knew that I wanted to go on to higher education but I didn't know uh, that what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach but I didn't know what I wanted to teach. And once I came in contact with the materials that describe my own history, it made me give a purpose to what I wanted to teach other students who were like myself and also other ethnic backgrounds. I believe that uh, Native Studies in particular is, is a tool of empowerment. It's one of the ways that one can empower yourself in fully understanding the history that you may not have received in high school or in college maybe. But it's also a way for understanding how you want to make changes. 
I would say you should vote against anything to ban books or ban ethnic studies because I think the popular misconception is that these classes are breeding some sort of uh, anti-whiteness or anti this kind of hatred for uh, authority or, or for the history as it's told by the victors, right? Because history is always told by the winners. And that's not the point. It's not about hate or anti-anything. It's about knowing yourself. It's about knowing your own story and owning your own story. And it's about loving yourself. I have always believed that teaching myself about my culture is what healed me from my depression and low self-esteem. Once I realized I came from a strong and powerful community, I too became empowered. So thank you very much for sharing your views on the importance of knowing our histories through ethnic studies. Tamara, thank you for sharing. And I agree that learning about our histories and our cultures can be an empowering experience. And now, here's a song titled... Black Girl Pain by Talib Quilly featuring Jean Grey. In 2015, we spent time listening to stories from people that have lived with the pain of not having behavioral health care here in New Mexico. From conducting research, investigating barriers, and talking to advocates, policymakers, doctors, providers, and families, we're excited to be working towards tangible solutions with our hashtag NMSpeaksCrisis campaign. Many felt that New Mexico's behavioral health system is broken, so to help us understand this more, we wanted to speak to someone with years of knowledge on the topic. State Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino has over 30 years working in the behavioral health field in New Mexico. Here's the state senator with GJ Fellow, Christina Rodriguez. Welcome, Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself. I've been in the state senate for 11 years. For the last three years, I've been chairman of the Senate Public Affairs Committee, which is where health and mental health issues all go. Can you help me to understand the behavioral health crisis? The behavioral health system is a state-administered program. It's our responsibility at the state level. And so it falls on the legislature to finance it adequately and the administration to design and operate and make sure that it's functioning well. You know, I don't think either of us have done a good job. How does federal Medicaid money play into this? Part of the problem is that we rely so heavily on Medicaid. It's a temptation that we've fallen into using Medicaid because it's mostly federal money. It's an easy way to finance these programs. If your whole system's finances are Medicaid and Medicaid suddenly decides that they won't reimburse that because that's not a medical service, you're just flat out of luck. We need a Medicaid program that integrates with other funding sources. It'll pay for things that Medicaid refuses to pay for so that they really work together. And we don't have that right now. In 2013, we were suddenly informed that the agencies that had provided over 85% of the treatment services around the state were no longer gonna be able to participate in Medicaid. And since Medicaid is how we were funding our behavioral health system, then we no longer had a behavioral health system in place. 
we converted our behavioral health system into a managed care system, like HMOs. Then all the incentive is with the HMO that runs that contract for those people to really clamp down. They're not going to spend a dime they don't have to. And so if they can get away with saying no case management, no that, no this, if they can get away with that, they will. In physical health, if they tried to do that, people would get sicker and would wind up in the hospital and would cost them more money. But in behavioral health, they wind up in jail or in a homeless shelter. It is a, a model that misses a key element. That is, if you don't treat them now, you're gonna to have to spend a lot more later on to treat them. So if they don't provide case management, it's okay. The psychiatrist still gets his reimbursement when he sees somebody. That's, I think, the big problem. We've used an incentive system that has no incentive in it. And we're underfunding some of the things that are most useful. And I would say the three things are case management, LADACs, and some kind of residential programming. What about substance abuse treatment? Our alcoholism programs in this state over 35 years were built up largely using what's called licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselors, LADACs. For the most part, these are paraprofessionals. They may have a BA, very few of them have master's degrees, but they, they're very good at what they do because many of them were themselves addicts or, or alcoholics. Well, Medicaid has slowly begun refusing to reimburse work done by LADACs. They say, well, they're not real behavioral health professionals, and so they won't reimburse. And because we rely on Medicaid to finance our programs now, LADACs are flat out of luck. The programs are flat out of luck. They can't attract enough social workers and psychiatrists and psychologists or counselors who are certified for Medicaid reimbursement. The HMOs, the managed care organizations, like to say, oh, all the research shows that outpatient work with alcoholics is just as effective as sending them into a hospital. But for Larry, right here, who needs to get sober and needs to deal with his alcoholism, he may need to go into a residential program for a period. And so when they just baldly say no residential, no inpatient treatment, that doesn't help us deal with the real problems. In mental health services, and especially in drug and alcohol services, everything in behavioral health hinges on the relationship between the therapist and the patient. There is no relationship, there's no treatment. It takes weeks and months to build up the confidence to create a relationship. That's why all these disruptions are particularly dangerous because even the people that want treatment may not come in to see the new therapist because they had confidence in the old one who suddenly abandoned them. They didn't know they got fired or they didn't know that the company lost all of its funding and left. All they know is the person I used to talk to is not around anymore, so I'm not gonna go in to see somebody new. Maybe over time, if I ever got to in to see them, I'd build up that trust relationship. Describe your vision of a healthy behavioral health system. Ideally, what I would like to see would be regional mental health centers. If we had four regional mental health centers like that, each serving a quadrant of the state, we could build excellence into our system. All of that, I think, could be done if the shift was from how can we make a little profit to how can we serve more people. Thank you, Senator Ortiz-Pino, for sharing all of your knowledge with us. Senator Ortiz-Pino, thank you so much for your dedication to improving New Mexico's behavioral health care system. In order to really work towards positive change, 
Generation Justice needed to talk with those who face the daily challenges of navigating the behavioral health system. So we spoke to over 60 people whose lives have been personally and professionally impacted by the crisis. Here are the voices of veterans, psychiatrists, students, behavioral health consumers, and providers to give us more insight into the system. Being a veteran, um, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've been trying to find somebody who's actually really qualified in behavioral health, not just trying to shove medications down your throat. I live in the South Valley. It's the hardest thing to try to get a therapist. The hardest. If you look at the crisis in our state, the largest mental health facility is the Metropolitan Detention Center. We have more beds there with, that are filled with patients that have psychiatric needs than anywhere else. I don't think people are talking about mental health enough or being the voice enough that instead of realizing how important our behavioral health system was, we just kind of said, no, we can change it up. It's not a big deal. When I moved to New Mexico, there were really surprising things like someone suicidal in a rural area and there's no mental health services overnight or on the weekend and they're put in a jail cell. It's extremely difficult to find care because they just shut down all of the providers and there was nothing anybody could do about it. It is our first priority, not just to have to have a quality of life, but a life that actually improves and can be changed when we come seeking for help. I had a big problem with depression, so right away they just wanted to give me medication and just drug me. And instead of like trying to find out the reasoning for what's going on, and for like the way I was feeling. And pretty soon I was just being overly medicated to the point where I was just sitting down all day. Like I didn't move. I didn't have no type of emotion. I didn't feel mad. I didn't feel sad. I didn't want to cry. I didn't want nothing. It wasn't really helping me or like helping me get down to like the bottom of like what was really causing my depression. In New Mexico, I think they could help use to find other ways to cope with it instead of just giving them drugs or making drugs more available to deal with their situations. My message to policymakers regarding the crisis is to stop treating us like animals and stop treating us like criminals because we're just people and we just need help. I think that we're really bright and we could be thinking differently about healthcare and how to do it. In the same way that overlooking a broken arm can lead to catastrophic problems, Overlooking uh, mental illness can lead to catastrophic problems. Treat my illness as though I've walked into your emergency room with a gunshot to my head. It's just that important. My message to legislators is that they need to take behavioral health seriously and we get funded for it and we find doctors, give doctors incentives to come to New Mexico within the behavioral health field. I've been in the behavioral health system. I am part of the behavioral system, so it's not like it's something out there. As New Mexicans, we're all impacted by this. It's our problem. I really appreciate that you all not only shared your stories with us, but that you also shared solutions to the crisis. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who shared their experiences on the behavioral health crisis with us. And now, here's a song titled Strengthen Your Mind by Desiree.
have reached the end of our show tonight. Thank you all for joining us for this special edition of Generation Justice. A huge thank you to all of our guests that we've had on our program over this past year. We're honored to have shared your stories and have had the opportunity to learn from you all. We would like to thank Stephen Renderos, Carrie Wilkinson, and Jasleen Mendoza. A special thanks as well to Senator Linda Lopez, Vicente Griego, Tanea Winder, Bayan Jabber, Rodney Bow, Olivia Romo, Tristan Autone, Virginia Necochea, Tony Watkins, Dr. Tiffany Lee, Joseph Powdrell, Karen Cathy, Frank Juan, Dr. Irene Vasquez, Dr. Charles Becknell, Rafael Martinez, Dr. Glenaba Martinez, and Hakeem Bellamy. We would also like to thank Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino, Bernadette Dickinson, Bahati Ansari, Dr. William Wagner, Brianna Chavez, Dr. Storm Lynn, Sam Innes, Fred Sandoval, and Selena Sanchez. Shout out to all of our amazing Generation Justice members for conducting these interviews. Tonight's engineer is Kamaria Umi. Production assistants came from Polly Dinetclaw, Christina Rodriguez, George Luna Peña, Melissa Harris, and Roberta Rael. Much appreciation to all of our youth media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Also, our podcasts are now available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Tamara Kalaki. And I'm George Luna Peña. We'll end the show with some more music. Then, following us on KUNM is Spoken Word. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Buenas noches. This is a world This is a world premiere. This is a world premiere. I done been through a whole lot. Trial, tribulation, but I know God. Satan wanna put me in a bow tie. Pray that the holy water don't go dry, yeah, yeah. As I look around me, so many, many, many wanna tell me. But ain't no me gon' never tell me. In front of a dirty double mirror, they felt me. And I love myself. The world is a ghetto, big guns, and